Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that the song we just sang would actually indeed be our heart's cry, that as we go through this life, our love for you would yet grow and grow so that even our final words might be words of praise to you. Father, I ask that you would help us as your people to to continue to have uh, spiritual growth in our lives. Help us to make that our greatest desire. Father, there are so many competing desires that we have in this world, and many of them are good desires, desires that you've implanted to us. We want to be uh, good parents. We want to be good spouses. We want to be good citizens. These are all good things to do, but Lord, help us to have as our driving goal a desire to live for you. Help us to, uh, to prioritize our spiritual growth over every other desire. Help us to grow in our love for you so much that, uh, that if we were to ask to, um, to evaluate our lives, to give a value to all the aspects of our life, that, that the highest point of our life would be our worship of you, our desire to be with you. Father, our frail human hearts are easily distracted. We are easily swayed by the, the things of this world. And some of them are sinful things, but some of them in and of themselves are good things. Father, help us to not be swayed by good or bad things. Help us to pursue that which is best, our relationship with you. Father, I ask that as we look into your word this morning, that you would be glorified, that we would, that we would adopt the same heartbeat that Paul had for you, that we would be able to account everything as loss compared to the wealth of simply knowing you. So Father, we ask that your spirit would move in our midst this morning, that you would uh, connect our hearts to the message this morning, to the word of God this morning, so that we might grow, so that we might be able to help others grow, to encourage others in their walk of faith. Father, that we would be recharged and ready to go into the world throughout this week and and take those opportunities that you will inevitably give us to share the gospel and to share why we have the hope of salvation in us and, and to share how you make a difference in our life each and every day. Father, as easy as it is to talk about uh, sports or to talk about our children or to talk about the weather, help us to as freely talk about you. So Father, we ask that uh, as we've gathered here together this morning that, uh, that you would be glorified, that we would be uh, encouraged, challenged from your word in Jesus' name, amen. We are continuing the mind of Christ in the book of Philippians. Uh, Paul's desire in the book of Philippians is to set forth 
the ultimate example of godliness for the Philippians to follow and, well, for us to follow, and that's of Jesus Christ. That we might know him so well that our concept of right and wrong is adopted and, and conformed to the mind of Christ. That our concept of what is best would be conformed to the mind of Christ. If we are going to pursue the right living that God has designed for us, we are going to have to have more than just simple determination. We're going to have to have more than even a brute force determination. Because just making ourselves do what is right is not what God is aiming for. He wants our heart. No matter how much determination we might muster, we will fail. We might succeed in obeying a list of commands superficially, at least for a time, but to, to obey God's law in action and in attitude, well, that's just simply not something that we can do. And that's not Pastor Chad just being a downer. That's biblical. Go ahead, read scripture. Read the whole Bible. You're not going to find a passage in it that in any way, shape, or form encourages you to live a godly life without connecting your obedience to the power of God. If we're going to live the way the Bible commands us to live, it's always attached to the power of God through the Bible, his word, through the Holy Spirit, uh, the one who indwells us or even through the fellowship of the church. In, in his letter to the Philippians, Paul connects right living to the power of having the mindset of Christ. Would you say our theme passage with me? Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is our goal, to humble ourselves under the will of God that even if it comes to our death we would follow him we would obey Jesus set aside his comfort his status even his personal desires in order to obey God the Father and in his obedience he obeyed to the ultimate degree that of crucifixion Last week we ended in chapter 3, verse 3. Uh, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And, and that phrase is key, tying us in with where we go in verse 4 today. The Jewish people were God's chosen people of old. They knew it and they were proud of it. They took great pride in their heritage, in their family line. And this week Paul starts out, in verse 4 of today's passage, basically saying, if I were to put confidence in the flesh, this is what it would look like. That's where we find ourselves in today's passage. So follow along with me as I read today's text, Philippians 3, beginning in verse 4. 
though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Our big idea this morning is we can be confident in our salvation by faith because Jesus saves and Jesus keeps. Paul starts out talking about a false confidence. Confidence that many people would naturally find in themselves. A confidence of his heredity. Of his heredity. My goodness. Paul had a religiously faithful family. He says, if anyone thinks that they have confidence in the flesh, I have more. Because even when I was born, I was immediately obeying God by being circumcised on the eighth day. Now, all Jewish males would have been circumcised, but Paul had more bragging rights than many of the Jews. He was an eighth-dayer. That means if he was born on a Wednesday, that next Wednesday he was taken to the temple and circumcised. I know we would count that as seven days later. The Hebrew culture calls that eight because they count the first day in a sequence. That's why we talk about Jesus being uh, in the grave three days even though he was buried Friday evening and rose Sunday morning. In our mind, that is not three days. To the Jewish mind, it is because it was part of Friday, all of Saturday, a little bit of Sunday. Paul was an eighth dayer. All Jews were circumcised, and Paul's like, yeah, but I'm an eighth-dayer. Do you hear the smugness in that? That's on purpose. He intends for us to hear that in the passage. It's not that he was just circumcised as a child, but exactly to the letter of the law. Leviticus 12, 3 prescribes it. On the eighth day, the males were to be circumcised. Paul uses his eighth-day status as sort of a better-than-others brag. Others who might be good-practicing Jews may not have been brought up in such a righteous household, but Paul was. He says, if I were to boast in my flesh, this is part of my boast. I was born into a very devout, godly family. He continues, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin, a perfect example of what it means to be of the Hebrew people. Answer me this, did Paul choose any of that? No, of course not. He didn't get to choose what family he was born into or what religious ceremonies they enacted when he was a child. He didn't get to choose to be an Israelite. He didn't get to choose to be of the tribe of Benjamin. 
Yet if we're going to be confident in the flesh or brag on a physical basis, sure, why not brag about what family you're born into? Why not brag that you're born in the United States of America? Now, of course, we recognize the foolishness of such confidence. But isn't that how we would be? Paul says, this is how I would be. This is how I was. I had confidence in my relationship with God because of who I am, not in Christ, because of who I am as a Hebrew, as a Jew, as being born and raised in a godly family. We recognize that foolishness. Remember, this is a hypothetical brag. If anyone else thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have more, Paul says, at the end of verse 4. False confidence would be found in heredity. Secondly, false confidence would be found in achievement. The end of verse 5, as to the law of Pharisee. Now this one he did choose, right? He didn't choose to be born a Hebrew. He didn't choose to be born into the family in which he was born. But he did choose to be a Pharisee. Who were the Pharisees? Well, if you know anything about the Pharisees, you know that there's always a negative context about them. And if that's all you know, that's probably enough. Uh, but the word itself, uh, the Pharisee, means to separate, divide, or distinguish. In, in other words, the Pharisees set themselves apart from the rest of the Jewish people by devoting themselves to the knowledge and practice of the word of God. Notice I said the knowledge and practice of the word of God, not actually having a relationship with God. That was not part of their pursuit. Now, they would, they would not say it that way, uh, but their emphasis on the word of God and their obedience to it, their memorization of it, they would pride themselves in memorizing the law of Moses. I mean, some of us are struggling to memorize four verses out of the book of Philippians. Go ahead. Go ahead and memorize Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Yikes. Do you understand why they would have some pride then? Because they knew the word of God inside out and backwards. They would memorize the law of Moses. And the Pharisees are perhaps most noted for adding their own clarifications to the law, giving the law more specificity than what God actually gave. Uh, and it's, it's really easy to fall into that trap, to try so hard to obey the letter of the law that where the law is not specific, that we add to it. In their case, uh, one of the laws that they added quite a bit to uh, was God's law requiring no ordinary work being done on the Sabbath. Now, God just said the Sabbath day is holy, Set it aside for worship. Don't do any ordinary work. This would be Saturday, in case you're remembering. It's n we're not talking about the New Testament. We're talking about the Old Testament. This was Saturday. And this law regarding no work on the Sabbath means what, wh or would naturally bring up the question, what does it mean to work? And they determined that walking, if you walked enough, that became work. Now, some of us walking uh, further than just our property line, that is lots of work. Uh, they determined we have to come up with a specific, a specific distance. 
And what they came up with was, uh, depending on what, um, what commentary you, you look up, is somewhere between uh, two-thirds of a mile and three-quarters of a mile, something, something like that. So if they needed to travel somewhere on the Sabbath that was a little bit farther than what they were allowed to go by a Sabbath day journey, they had to come up with ways around that because they wanted to be known for obeying the letter of the law, but they also didn't want to obey the letter of the law. And so they came up with ways, like tying a rope to a tree on their property and then saying that as they carried that rope with them, that extended their property. So when the rope ran out, then that was now where their Sabbath day journey began. Isn't that insane? In other words, the Pharisees were known for having a display of obedience so that they could claim complete obedience, but they would be extremely creative so that they could bend the rules as they saw fit. So they could justify the actions that they wanted to do that were in contrary to what God's word actually told them to do. And to be honest, to most Jews, they'd look at the Pharisees and go, "Eh, I don't think so. By the way, we can do this too. We can add other standards to the Bible that are not in there and then make others feel guilty for not adhering to our arbitrary standards. And then, and then we, when we know that our standards are out of line with God's word, we justify it in our mind to do what we want to do. Paul claims his achievement of being a Pharisee, and a good one, as one of the ways he might boast in the flesh if he were to do so. Verse six, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. blameless. His zealous accomplishment was persecuting the church. Paul went above and beyond in his pursuit to be a a pure Jew, to ensure that the Jewish faith remained the only faith in the land. Of course, if he had really been devoutly following the scripture, he would never participated in the persecution of the church. That's okay. Remember to the Pharisees what the law actually said. We can't let that stop us from doing what we want to do. They wanted to protect the Jewish faith by preventing the church from spreading. So Paul was uh, active in persecuting the church. In fact, he was front and center from the very start. In Acts chapter 7, Beginning in verse 60 and leading into chapter 8, we see the account of the first martyr in the New Testament. Stephen, one of the deacons of the church, was killed for his faith. Let me read for you just a few verses from the end of Acts 7. And falling to his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep or he died. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And remember, this Saul is Paul the apostle. Let that sink in. 
as a devout, zealous Jew, he was going house to house to find those who believed that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, and he was having them imprisoned. And when it came to the stoning of Stephen, he may not have picked up a stone himself, but he certainly approved. That's the same Paul who wrote the book of Philippians. He may not have actively killed any of the early church, but he approved of it and was just as guilty. But in the eyes of the Pharisees, he was completely in the right. So if he were to have bragging rights among the Jewish people, among the religious elite, this would be one of the things he would brag about. I persecuted the church. I actually killed some of their leaders. He goes on talking about his reputation as a law keeper. Now understand what Paul is saying and what he is not saying. Paul is not saying that he attained sinless perfection in keeping the law. Uh, nor is he saying that he was absolutely righteous in, in all that he did. What Paul is saying is that in the eyes and the judgment of his peers, other Pharisees, other devout Jewish people, uh, those who also knew the fullness, the totality of the law, they would look at Paul's life and said, yes, he is righteous under the law. He is blameless. No accusation could stick against him. Though at one time, Paul would have found great confidence in his heritage, the advantages he was born into as the son of devout Jews. And though Paul would have at one time found great confidence in his personal achievement, in his zeal for God, and even in his own righteousness, none of that is true now. False confidence of heredity is behind him. The false confidence of achievement is behind him. His true confidence is his faith in Christ, verses 7 and 8. Whatever gain I had, all those things he counted as pluses, all those things that were his bragging points from essentially his past life, all of those things that were gain I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I, th I count everything as loss. Why? Not because those things weren't good, was it good that Paul grew up in a godly family, in a religious family? Yes. Was it good that he had a zeal for God? Yes, although he applied it very poorly. It says, those things compared to Christ, I count them as nothing, as loss. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul's advantageous heritage, garbage. Paul's excellent achievements, garbage. In fact, that word that he uses translated as rubbish can also be translated as litter, garbage, or even dung. Yes, that dung. In other words, Paul is making a very strong point. He's holding nothing back in how 
useless and utterly vile all those advantages of his past were. He's not simply leaving them in his past. He's not simply ignoring them or turning his back on his perceived advantages. He's disowning them. He's discounting them and discarding them. What he once called assets, he is now calling toxic waste. Why? Verse 7, for the sake of Christ. And to verse 8, that I might gain Christ. That's how valuable Jesus is to Paul and should be for all of us believers. Paul's true confidence is found in his faith in Christ Jesus with nothing added. Because if we're, if we're to take Paul's life after his conversion, after the road to Damascus when uh, when God spoke to him from the cloud and, and he was blinded and he was uh, then uh, blind for several days, healed later, becomes an apostle of Jesus Christ. If you take all of the things that he did that were amazing in helping to start or keep the church growing into new areas. He didn't start the church. He wasn't that early of an apostle. But he was the one who was the ap apostle to to the Gentiles, going places that others had not gone and starting churches uh, like wildfire. All those things we would look at and say, those are amazing achievements. Those are good things that God used in his life. And Paul doesn't mention any of them because it's only Jesus that matters to him. That's it. Can we say that? Can we look at our lives and the things that are good in our life and say, if all that were taken away but I still had Jesus, my life would be fine. In fact, my life would be great. Paul's confidence is a result of a comprehensive understanding of the gospel. He understands that he, like all mankind, like you and I, he was born a sinner, and that sin separated him from God. It didn't matter that he was born into a Jewish family, having a heritage of being an eighth-dayer. It didn't matter that he had been zealous for God, because before he came to Christ, he was still on his way to hell. didn't matter how many good things he did in the name of religion. Memorizing vast portions of scripture, being able to teach it well, becoming a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as he said, being one of the predominant Pharisees of his day, none of that mattered because he was a sinner. And he needed a savior. And he recounts multiple times in the book of Acts that time when Jesus saved him. When he turned in faith to his God. His heritage and faithfulness 
uh, the heritage and faithfulness of his family did not prevent and could not undo the separation, God, between him and God because of his sin. His zealous actions could not prevent or undo the separation between God and Paul because of his sin. Only the sacrifice of Jesus was sufficient. Only the sacrifice of Jesus was good enough to unite God the Father with sinners. And we know that's true. This church has been preaching that for nearly 50 years. And yet sometimes what we know and what we know are at war. We know that Jesus saves us by his work alone. And yet we very easily try to find confidence in our salvation, not in his work, but in ours. God's grace gives us salvation through the work of Jesus. And it's God's grace who keeps us saved by the work of Jesus and not through our own effort. Now, don't take this to mean, well, because Jesus keeps me saved, I can go do whatever I want. No, we're examining just a few verses out of a whole, out of a whole context. We will get to more of what we're supposed to do with this later. But it is the truth that the God who saves us through the work of Jesus is the God who keeps us through the work of Jesus. And that's why Paul finds his confidence in Jesus alone and not in his own works. We're going to keep unpacking verse 8 in future messages. We're going to take verses 8 and 9 together and then 8 through 10 together because there's so much in, in verses 8 through 11, especially 8 through 12, uh, that we need to take them separately and together in order to get a full picture. So we're, gonna, we're not finished with verse 8. We're going to unpack more of what Paul has crammed tightly into these verses. Though for today we are finished with verse 8. <clears throat> we can be confident in salvation by faith because Jesus saves and Jesus keeps. Where do you find your comfort and satisfaction? Where is your confidence? Some find their confidence in their family, as Paul said he once did. When you grow up in a family who is faithful in church for as long as anyone can remember, it's easy to have confidence in being good with God, but religious traditions do not make one right with God. Some find confidence in the rejection of culture or the rejection, denouncement of possessions. The more modern trend of minimalism is just as much an idol as is the opposite of it, of acquiring and flaunting possessions. Growing up, we had some Amish friends, and they said that their goal in life was to make life as hard as possible in this life so they might attain peace with God in the next life. Now, I'm not sure that all Amish believe that way, but these did. They rejected the comforts of life so that in death they might attain heaven. I have a Catholic friend who has told me essentially the same thing. That he's going to be as hard on himself as he can in this life, trying to be good so that in the next life 
he can be in heaven with God. Friends, this is not the good news of the Bible. It sounds feasible. On the surface, it sounds good to people. It sounds right to people. If you just pursue good works, surely God will take you to heaven. If you uh, renounce the luxuries of this world, surely God will take you into heaven. That's not what the word of God says. The good news of the Bible is that salvation is found in Jesus and in him alone. I was telling Pastor Dan before the sermon, I need to make sure I don't start preaching the next verse. But you go ahead and read ahead where we're going. We'll see why he has such confidence in the work of Jesus Christ. What are you trusting in today? Where is your confidence? If you're a believer, your salvation started with faith. So don't slip into trusting in your good works now. If you're sitting here today and you are an unbeliever, all your hard work to earn salvation will get you nowhere. Turn in faith to him today. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the gift of salvation that is found in Jesus alone. And that salvation, it takes our sin guilt away from us, though we still sin. It adds the righteousness of Jesus Christ to us so that when you see us, you see your son. You see his righteousness rather than our sinfulness. And therefore we are in a right standing with you. Father, help us to never forget that our confidence in, in salvation, our confidence in the gospel is not found in what we might do. It is found in Jesus Christ alone. Father, forgive us for the ways that we uh, find pride and confidence in our own righteousness as we, as we look over our lives in the way that, that you have grown us. Uh, Father, forgive us for taking credit for our spiritual growth. Help us to find our confidence, our bragging, our boasting in Jesus alone. As Paul has challenged us through the word of God today. So Lord, use your spirit to take these truths and help us to to attach our lives to this concept of having the mind of Christ, of, of thinking the way Christ would think, of doing the things that he would do with this, this humility that is expressed through Paul's writing in, in his own personal testimony of how he could have this confidence in, in, the, in where he came from and the things that he had done. But Father, his confidence was only in you. Help us to only have confidence in you. So Father, we ask that you would Continue to use these words in our hearts and minds throughout the day, throughout this week, as we seek to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand.